All right, will you please stand and let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 5, verse 33. Um, be considering Jephthah's foolish and ultimately disastrous vow. And uh, so we're going to hear from the Sermon on the Mount some of Jesus' teaching, uh, warning against just the sort of thing that Jephthah does. Closely related. Um, Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now let's turn back to our sermon text in Judges chapter 11. Judges 11, verses 29 through 40. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead, and from Mitzpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand... Then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, And you have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions." So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Amen. You may be seated. So what is a tragedy? 
A tragedy, as we commonly use the word, is, is something sad or really awful that happens. Uh, there can be lots of different reasons for this, like a natural disaster or, or a, a sudden, unexpected death. Call that a tragedy, a bad accident. In the world of, of literature, uh, though, the term tragedy has a little bit more of a specific meaning, a little bit more narrow meaning. In literature, a tragedy is a story about uh, a, a, usually a sympathetic character, um, a protagonist, a hero, who nonetheless has some serious weakness or, or makes some seriously bad choice. Uh, we call it the person's tragic flaw. And that tragic flaw becomes the downfall of this character and very often also of the people that he loves. Uh, this was true way back when the ancient Greeks were writing tragedies in the golden age of Greece, Athens, and so on. Um, and you can see it uh, play out also in stories that are a little bit more familiar to us in the English language, like Hamlet or Macbeth. Shakespeare's famous for his tragedies. Each of these men having a fatal flaw that leads to disaster for themselves and for others. So in this sense, uh, tragedy then is not just when bad things happen. Um, it's when people bring disaster upon themselves and the people that they love through the consequences, often in unintended consequences, of their actions. And so as we evaluate the history of Jephthah, I think it really helps to use that concept of a tragic hero uh, to think about his life. Because in many ways, especially up until now, uh, after tonight, you might not think of him this way anymore, but up until now, we would have thought of him as a very sympathetic character. And last time, we focused on what I, what I referred to repeatedly as Jephthah at his best. Jephthah at his best was, what was he doing? He was remembering and retelling the history of God's saving work in Israel's past. He was appealing to the Lord as the ultimate judge with a capital J. But like so many of the judges in this book and also many other leaders in other times in Israel's history, Jephthah has a fatal flaw. He makes really a series of uh, very bad choices um, that bring destruction and death to his family and to his nation. And those choices end up rendering the, his life story then a tragedy in the fullest sense of that word. So let's explore that tonight here at the end of chapter 11 using the, uh, these headings. First of all, a foolish vow, verses 29 to 33. Second, a false dilemma, verses 34 to 35. And then finally, a foreboding tragedy, verses 36 to 40. So a foolish vow, a false dilemma, and a foreboding tragedy. First, the foolish vow. So uh, last time, with the help of commentator Barry Webb, we talked uh, quite a bit about the theme that he calls <clears throat> same but different in the book of Judges. We focus mainly on how Jephthah is same but different when you compare him with Abimelech. 
Um, we also touched a little bit, I think, on Gideon, and we even showed how um, comparing chapter 11 with chapter 10, that there's even a, a close parallel in the interactions between Israel and Jephthah and between Israel and the Lord. So last time we mainly looked for those, uh, looked backwards in time for those same but different comparisons. Um, but tonight we're going to primarily look forward in history because there's a very important connection between <clears throat> Jephthah's foolish vow in this passage and another famous foolish vow by another tragic hero a little bit later in Israel's history. And that is, if you haven't guessed it yet, King Saul. King Saul. So think about this. First Samuel chapter 14. You can flip ahead there if you want to kind of look at the context. So Saul is fighting against the Philistines and he lays an oath on the people and he says, Cursed be the man who eats food until the evening and I am avenged on my enemies. Uh, so he's basically swearing to take the life of any man who eats any food until they finish beating up on the Philistine army. Problem is that Saul's son, Jonathan, is not there when his father places the oath on the people. And so he eats something that afternoon, and it creates this great crisis, this uh, dilemma for Saul, uh, where he very nearly has his son executed publicly right there in front of the whole army, and he's only spared because the army protests. And they say, no, wait, that, that's going to happen, not while we're standing here. They, and, it, and it goes on, it says, they ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Remember that uh, for a little bit later when we get to the, false, the second point, the false dilemma. Um, but hold that thought. So anyway, in the case of Saul, you have a foolish vow that is intended to seal this victory for God's people over their enemies, but that foolish vow ends up backfiring by endangering the life of that leader's child. You see the close parallel between these two situations. And that, that comparison thickens as... Uh, writer named Tammy Schneider points out, when you remember that just before that battle against the Philistines, what had Saul just done? He had made a disobedient sacrifice, a sacrifice he was never supposed to make when he did not wait for Samuel like he was supposed to do. And Samuel told him that that disobedience, that sinful sacrifice, was the reason that he was going to lose the throne to David, ultimately. And so besides the foolish vow and the endangerment of the leader's child, you also have a sinful sacrifice that the leader never should have made. Again, these, all of these threads are tying these two histories together of Jephthah and Saul. And really, if you ask the question, who is the ultimate example in Israel's history of a great leader whose tragic flaw undermined his leadership and destroyed his legacy? Well, actually, you probably have to answer that question with a pretty long list because that happens repeatedly in Israel's history. But I think very high on that list, at least, would have to be King Saul. Um, in fact, I believe these two histories are meant to be read together, mutually informing each other as we consider how Saul's failure was foreshadowed in the time of the judges. And then from the other angle, we see how Jephthah's failure gets repeated in the time of the kings. Another similarity between Jephthah and Saul is that both men were empowered for their leadership and victories by the Holy Spirit. Okay, last time we talked about Jephthah at his best, right? When you compare Jephthah at his best with Saul at his best, 
That's what you see. You see the Holy Spirit working through those two men to do what? To save Israel through their leadership. And that's where we pick up here in verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And so this is showing that the victory that Jephthah is about to win is due to the power of God. This, of course, is not the first time that we've seen something like this in Judges. Chapter 3, verse 10 said the spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel, one of the first judges. To, to judge Israel and to save Israel. Chapter 6, verse 34, the spirit of the Lord rushed, uh, sorry, not rushed, but clothed uh, Gideon, clothed Gideon to lead Israel, in that case, against Midian. And that's actually a very important point of comparison because you might wonder if the spirit of the Lord has just come upon Jephthah, how do you explain the foolishness of what he does next? The very next thing he does is to make this foolish vow. Um, Well, there's another writer uh, by the name of Sasson who has something to say about this I think is pretty insightful. So right after Gideon is clothed with the Spirit, we're talking about Gideon now, going back in time. The very next episode after Gideon is clothed with the Spirit is that famous scene where he asks God for a sign using the fleece. So he has God's promise. He has God's power clothing him. He has the Spirit of God clothing him. And yet, Gideon still is insisting on something more. He still needs, uh, as this writer says, extra reassurance. So it's not enough for Gideon that God has promised him the victory, that God has clothed him with the Spirit. Gideon is still doubtful. He's still uncertain. And so he asks for those signs with the fleece that he puts out. Well, Jephthah's vow, this writer suggests, may reflect something kind of similar going on in Jephthah's heart. Okay, so it, you see how it's, it's not enough for Jephthah uh, to go into battle on the basis of God's covenant promises. It's not enough for Jephthah to have the Spirit of God empowering him for this victory. He needs that extra reassurance, which he seeks in this case, not, not by asking for a sign, but by making a vow. But it has the same effect, right? It's to gain some reassurance, some extra confidence that God is really going to be with him. That God is really going to give him the victory. If I, if I promise to do this thing for God, then he will be more likely to help me win. That's the thinking here. And, and that's part of what's so tragic about this vow is that it's so unnecessary. He didn't even have to make this in the first place. If, if he had simply been willing to trust God for the future... As just as thoroughly as he had been willing to acknowledge God's faithfulness in the past. Remember, the whole previous uh, passage from last time it was all about Jephthah so faithfully embracing the history of what God had done for Israel back then. But here he stumbles when it comes to trusting that the Lord will continue to act that way in his here and now. He needs that little extra. He needs a little plus, a little... A promise, a promise of his own to add to the promises of God, as though any promise that Jephthah could make could possibly make more sure God's commitment to his people. And what a lesson this is for us, just right there. 
Um, we who, who love to study and to learn and to know God's word, who, who love to remember the history of God's people, the history of God's faithfulness in the times of Israel, in the gospel, the work of Christ, in the history of the church, and in our own lives. Look back and remember what God has done for us personally. And yet, when it comes to our here and now, what we're facing right in this moment, when it comes to the unknown, the uncertain future that we, where we haven't yet seen how God is going to provide for us this time, how this time God will help us. We haven't seen that yet, and so how often we stumble. For all that we know of the past, for all that we know of God's character and his faithfulness, where we're weak is in trusting him for the stories that we're still in the middle of, where we don't know the ending yet. And so we feel the need for a little extra reassurance, a little plus, a little, a little addition of our own, as though we could somehow make more sure by our efforts, the goodness of the outcome that God has in store, that he's had planned for all eternity. It's kind of sad then, after this vow, how, how quickly the victory itself just kind of gets passed over in just a couple of verses. Oh, and yes, of course, Jephthah won the battle, but you already knew that was going to happen. Not because of the vow he made, by the way, but because the Lord was with him. It's the spirit of God clothing him that guarantees that the victory is going to happen. The, the vow didn't add to the certainty of that at all. So the, the victory is just, we blaze through the victory against the Ammonites. But where the historian slows back down is when Jephthah comes home. And there coming out to meet him is his only child, his beloved daughter. And remember um, when we looked at the, the minor judges at the start of chapter 10 and compared them with the minor judges that come right after the story of Jephthah at the end of chapter 12, um, how those minor judges, a series of them, are known, as repeated for many of them, for their many, many sons and daughters. They have a lot of kids. And Jephthah stands out, sandwiched in between all of those minor judges, uh, because he has just one. One only daughter. And as she comes out dancing to welcome him home, Jephthah is just stricken with this dread and this horror because of, of the vow that he made before the battle. Um, and he's faced now with what to him seems like an impossible dilemma. He can't break his vow, he thinks, because that, he supposes, would bring on him um, the wrath of God. And not sure if speculating too much to say perhaps he was afraid of the that he had made this vow publicly before the people. Um, from his point of view, he felt he had to keep that vow. And, and yet, to keep that vow, to offer as a burnt offering, the first thing to come out of his house would require him to do something too terrible to imagine. Or we could hope, we could wish that it would have been too terrible for Jephthah to imagine. In fact, that's the, precisely the problem here. The horror of this story is that Jephthah could even begin to think about following through on this vow to the letter. That that was even a viable, imaginable possibility for him at all. The fact is that what Jephthah saw as an impossible dilemma was actually, when it comes right down to it, a false dilemma. It was a false dilemma. 
The fact is that there was actually provision made in the law of God for what to do when you've made a rash vow. You can turn there and look. I want to show you this. It's Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus 5, starting in verse 4, says, If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, it's acknowledging a rash vow is sinful. It is wrong to make a rash vow. It is wrong to vow to do something sinful. And nonetheless, it's making provision that when this person confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin he has committed, a female from the flock, lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for his sin. There's a few more details about this in the coming verses, but the wonderful conclusion to it is at the end of verse 10 where it says, once he's done all these things, and he shall be forgiven. Scripture is clear that a vow is a very serious thing. And that's not just an Old Testament reality, it's New Testament reality as well. A vow is a <clears throat> excuse me. A vow is a promise made to God. If you ever wondered what's the difference between an oath and a vow, that's the difference. An oath is a promise made to other people appealing to God as witness. A vow is a promise that is made to God. <clears throat> They're very, very similar and neither one should be made rashly. <clears throat> um Time after time, the scriptures exhort us to keep our vows, to be people of our word, to follow through on what we say that we're going to do. But scripture is equally clear that it is wrong to follow through on a promise of any kind, including a vow, if doing that requires you to sin. So if, if I promise tonight to go rob a bank tomorrow... What should I think when I wake up and remember tomorrow the folly of what I promised to do today? <clears throat> should I think, oh no, well, I, I said that I'd do it, I promised, and so now I have to follow through on that promise and go and, and steal? Well, no, because that would be to add evil on top of evil, and two wrongs don't make a right, right, as the saying goes. So what I'd have to, to recognize at that point is that I had already broken God's law the day before when I first promised to do something evil. That's what I need to repent of. That's what, where I need to humble myself. I need to ask God's forgiveness for my rash words, not double down and, and follow through on those rash words that never should have come out of my mouth in the first place. And that's the way the scriptures teach us to deal with rash oaths and vows. Um, as an aside, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's important to make clear since we're dealing with this ethical issue. Um, that does not mean that I can go back on any promise just because I regret it later. Okay? That's very different. In fact, Psalm 15 describes a godly man as someone who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, he follows through on his promises even if it turns out to be unexpectedly bad for him to do so. Costly uncomfortable, difficult, bringing on him great loss. He follows through anyway because he gave his word. And so the lesson here, I want to just make sure you don't get the wrong idea. The lesson here is not, you can go back on your promises uh, if you regret them later. No, you can't. The only time 
the scripture would teach us that we must break a promise is when we've promised to do something sinful. Okay? It's a very narrow point here. Because in that case, we must not compound the folly of our promise with the further folly of following through on it. Instead, we have to repent of the promise and, and, and seek to do whatever we can to make whole whatever has been broken by those sinful words. Okay, so coming back to Jephthah. If only, at this point, if only Jephthah had taken that approach. If only he had been as committed and knowledgeable about the law of God as he was about the, the history of God's people and used that faithful <clears throat> moral reasoning that the scriptures would teach us. But instead, you know, it's, it's hard to know exactly what was motivating him here, whether it was primarily ignorance of the law of God. <clears throat> it could be that I was talking about um, that it's, it's sad that this was even imaginable for him to follow through on his vow. And I want to suggest that it could be perhaps the influence of Canaanite religion around him is what made the sacrifice of a child seem plausible to him um, in a way that, that is unimaginable to us. You know? it, it should have been unimaginable to Israel. It should have been unimaginable to <clears throat> uh, Jephthah. Remember when Jeremiah brings up the issue of human sacrifice and the Lord says, I did not command that for Israel, nor did it come into my mind. God says. And yet to Jephthah, the culture around him contributes to this, this unconscionable, unimaginable act becoming actually imaginable for him. Something that he could actually entertain as a real possibility for him to do. What seems possible, what seems plausible, what seems acceptable to us or normal is, is so often shaped by our culture when it ought to be shaped by the word of God. It's trying to teach us to see with horror and dread and revulsion things that the culture around us accepts as run-of-the-mill, as, run as ordinary, as, as normal. But it's not normal. Rebellion against God is not normal. Sin is not normal of any kind or description. Jephthah's obvious blind spot in this regard should be a warning to all of us to think, where have I learned to see as plausible, to, to see as imaginable things that God's word is training me to recoil from in horror? With the same horror that I would have towards or at least with an analogous part to what I would have towards Jephthah taking his child's life. Yet what um, things which God views uh, as, um, un- as wants his people to see as unimaginable, do I, do I see as <clears throat> normal or acceptable or is just part of the way things are? Okay. And so we come to verse 36 and, and what we're calling here a foreboding tragedy. And I call it that foreboding tragedy because the evil of <clears throat> Jephthah's child sacrifice is just the beginning of the tragedy that comes on Israel under his leadership. It's followed up in the next chapter by a civil war where thousands of Israelites are killed. But it starts in principle right here. And what's the principle? It's that this man 
who was supposed to be a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior for Israel, has now turned a corner and begun to destroy the very people he was called upon to defend. It begins with his own family, and it's going to be extended to the nation. Uh, we were reading in family worship last week from Ezekiel, the Lord's rebuke <clears throat> of the shepherds of Israel, uh, that is their leaders, and how he, he charges those shepherds with devouring the flock that they were supposed to be feeding. And it's so stark, it is so sudden, it's so abrupt, the way the history moves from victory to tragedy here. Uh, Ralph Davis says, I thought it was very eloquent, he says, it's like Jephthah's actions managed to swallow up victory in sorrow. What should have been a cause for a great celebration turned so quickly into the opposite. And, and instead of a celebration, you have instead this annual uh, lament, this time of mourning that's going to be repeated every year in the mountains of Gilead commemorating this tragedy, this death of an innocent girl at the hands of the one man who should have been her ultimate protector. <clears throat> and as we'll see next time, what's true of her becomes true by extension of the people of Israel. So a tragic hero with a fatal, fatal flaw. That's the story of Jephthah. And it's the repeated story of the whole book of Judges. And as I mentioned earlier, it's going to be the ongoing story <clears throat> of Israel in the time of the kings, uh, beginning with King Saul. I said earlier that if you asked uh, who is the ultimate example in Israel's history of a great leader whose tragic flaw undermined his leadership and destroyed his legacy, that you'd, first of all, you'd have to have a long list, but Saul would be near the top. But what I want to tell you now is I don't think that Saul would be at the very top of the list. At the very top of that list, actually, you would have to put none other than Adam himself. The king of Eden, Adam was. The head of the human race. And yet he succumbs to the voice of the tempter asking him, did God really say? And every leader of the people of God after him, demonstrated one after another that God's people desperately need a leader so much different, so much better than any of those that they've gotten raised up from time to time throughout their history. Each one, as Ralph Davis puts it, could offer Israel only what he calls a marred salvation, a salvation marred by their own failures, inadequacies, and the often unintended consequences of their weakness and their folly. And for their true redemption, for what Davis calls a, a perfect salvation instead of a marred salvation, unmarred by the failures of their saviors. Saviors with a little s. Israel is ultimately going to have to depend time and time again on the Lord himself. It's the Lord who's the one who actually acts as a reliable savior in this story of Jephthah. But in looking towards the future, Israel is going to have to depend on the Lord himself to be the one who is going to come in person. And who he himself was going to set to rights all that his sinful people and their sinful saviors had broken and marred. And that is exactly what the Lord did. 
in the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that perfect Savior, who has no tragic flaw. But instead, what did he do? He took upon himself the tragic consequences of all of our tragic flaws, of all of the sin and the selfishness and the folly that left to ourselves would destroy us and everyone that we love and everything that we care about. But the Lord has not left us to ourselves. And that is the good news of the gospel because he has given to us Jesus and in Jesus he has given to us a perfect Savior who has brought us an unmarred salvation that we truly need. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, This chapter about Jephthah is, uh, in a sense, a truly awful chapter of the Bible. Um, And yet, Lord, we're thankful that it's there. Thankful for the ways you show us the depths of the sin and failure of your people, in which we can see reflected as a mirror our own rebellion, our own folly, our own sin, and our own need. for a perfect Savior, an unmarred salvation. I thank you that your word goes on. That it doesn't stop with Jephthah, but it gives us Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would please help us to take refuge in him together tonight. And we also pray, Lord, that you would teach us how faithfully as your people to be men and women and boys and girls of our word. And that that would not begin with keeping the promises that we make, but rather it would begin with being wise about what promises we make and how. And we would do that in a way that honors you and does not bring disgrace on your name uh, through our foolish speech and unbelief. Help us, we pray, Lord, because the dangers are great, but our Savior is strong, and we trust him together tonight. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.